One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You kind of get lessons from everything you do in life, I honestly believe. And the lesson I took from it was that. Yeah, it it made me want to become a buyer's agent, so I would never do what he did to me to anyone else. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum, and in this episode, we're speaking with young property investor Sam Gordon. He began his property investing career at a really early age. And we delve into his background with growing up on a farm, his passion for soccer and how that led him to a professional soccer career, how his property investing journey started and much, much more. Sam Gordon is a property buyer's agent and also property investor and has been running his own agency for the past 12 months. We learn about what a typical day looks like for Gordon. I'm a bit of an early riser. Uh, I used to be part of the kind of 5 a.m. club. I beat that these days. So I get up at uh, 4.59 <laughs> every morning uh, <laughs> and I, I go and train uh, every day. I'm a bit of a fitness fanatic. Uh, I love that. So um, yeah, so I kind of start my day that way and then usually I'm home by about 7 and then I pretty much spend my entire day um, sourcing you know, the exact properties that my clients uh, need next in their portfolios. Um, these kind of range from anything from your standard sort of... You you know, bread and butter, below market, strong cash flow, high growth deals, right through to high cash flow, like really high cash flow plays, uh, and your manufactured equity deals as well. So I'm kind of out there networking with all, all that sort of stuff, trying to trying to get as many uh, good deals as I can for my clients, and then obviously on the same, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, talking to my clients, working out exactly what they want, and and strategizing with them as well. Gordon gets up early, and he's able to get so much done within that short period of time in the morning because of his ability to plan. As soon as I get up, um, I actually spend the first 15 minutes of the day kind of setting out my day. It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a weird ritual that I do. I kind of jot down everything. I kind of wake up and I'm, I, I kind of, I'm wired like straight away and I kind of just jot down everything that I want to do during the day and then I, I literally go and train for at least about an hour and a half uh, every day and, and, and during that time, I kind of, I can refine what I want to do during the day. So as soon as it kind of hits a seven, I'm back home, shout and I'm just, I'm just firing like straight into the day. So then by the time I hit nine, um, anything I kind of needed to get set up before I can start calling people, uh, you know, I kind of get that all set up. So then as soon as as soon as it's nine, I'm, I'm networking, I'm hitting up different people, I'm chasing up different deals, building a pest inspectors, brokers, everything, just trying to get on the ball all the way through. Just I, I pretty much just kind of run all day as, as long as I can and just get as much in as I can really. What time do you normally finish up for the day? Some days I go right through to literally about 10 o'clock um, while I'm kind of crashing out but uh, but it, it kind of depends what I'm doing. I, mate, I, I absolutely love what I do. Um, I, I don't see it as a job really. I, I You know, it's, it's a passion for me, mate. You know, 18 properties in, in the past 10 years, I, it's just something I love doing and then the fact that I can go out and help other people 
do the same thing and build the same sort of portfolio. Mate, I, I love it. It's yeah, I, I, I literally will probably do it for <laughs> kind of until I drop, I guess. We delve into Gordon's backstory and he shares with us about where he grew up. I grew up about, uh, it was about two and a half hours uh, south of Sydney uh, in the in the Southern Highlands. It's a bit of an agricultural hub uh, down that sort of way. It's, it's actually quite a beautiful area. Um, and I, I grew up on a farm uh, with my, my family. Like we all kind of, kind of worked the farm from a pretty young age. And uh, yeah, yeah, my uh, my parents are very, very hardworking uh, people. You know, they kind of worked seven days a week for for as long as I can remember. And um, yeah, it was, it was it was a cool environment to kind of grow up there and kind of be on the farm, not being you know a city slicker sort of thing. You just kind of growing up, work working on utes, working on motorbikes, and uh, doing all that sort of stuff. So it was it was a good upbringing. Living and working on a farm at an early age takes up a lot of time and we learn about his interesting treks to school. It was two and a half hours each way. I used to catch two trains and a bus into uh, into Sydney. I went to a, a sports high school in Sydney called uh, Westfield Sports uh, and I was I was there for soccer and I was pretty pretty keen in my soccer back in those days and it was a pretty competitive school to be at. So, so yeah, I used to leave. Oh, that's the thing, I'm kind of used to the early mornings. I, I, I think I used to get up at 4.30 and catch a, it was about a 5.10 train. Um, from the Highlands to get me up there, and and yeah, it was a, it was different, but it, it kind of I guess bred something a little different into me as well. He could have gone to his local high school, but wanted to follow his dreams, and was given the chance to attend a prestigious high school by his parents. They gave me the opportunity. Um, uh, sorry, like the, the the decision to make for myself. I was pretty keen into soccer. I think back back then, back when I was kind of. Um, you know, at that sort of age, I was always playing two or three age groups up, uh, and the, the opportunity wasn't going to be there to, to play in the, um, in the in the you know I guess play at the at the level I wanted to play at down in the Highlands. So my brother and sister both went to quite good schools down here, and I had the opportunity of going to, to a fairly good school down here, or to or to kind of trek it up and go to um yeah go to go to the old Westfields. But it was it was good, mate. I, I loved it. Um, yeah, it was tra- you know we, when you go up there, you train every day. I was playing uh, in the New South Wales Premier League at the time as well, uh, so we used to train uh, three to four times a week. Game on the weekend, and then in school we used to train four days a week as well. So it was uh, it was pretty full on, but I but I loved it. The high school Gordon went to was a sports-focused high school and we learned how it was different from a normal high school. It still had all the subjects you, you kind of would normally go for, uh, but it saw sport as an additional subject that we used to do uh, outside of the standard curriculum. So um, the way our school was, it was quite a big, about 2,000 kids in the school and what they had, the juniors, the kind of 7 to 9, we used to train in the mornings. Uh, I think we, we start at 7.30, finish at 9 and, and, and start school after that. And then as seniors, we, I think uh, we used to start school early but then finish earlier and train after school uh, so it was kind of it was actually a really cool setup the way they did it and um, yeah it was it was a good experience I, I did love it there so you mentioned you also played in New South Wales Premier League as well and what at what stage was that was that during high school or after high school I was playing it uh, during high school as well, so they've got like a juniors a juniors level there. And uh, like truth be told, the New South Wales Premier League is pretty. It's pretty. I think the only one that probably comes close is probably the Victorian as well. They're they're pretty good down there too. And uh, it's you know there's a lot of really good players there. And I think I think I signed my first first grade contract. I left school at 16. The travel was just kind of killing me when I kind of went into those HSC years uh, in year 11. So I left school at 16 and signed my first uh, signed first first grade contract then. And it was um it, it was an awesome experience. Experience, played for some really, really top clubs uh, at, the, at the time. and We find out about what signing a contract for Junior Soccer League means and how it works. Once you turn 16, you can sign pro contracts uh, and essentially start getting paid. 
so um so yeah like what they what they normally do is they kind of try and pick the cream of of the youth coming through and if they get them on a pro contract they kind of typically will keep them at the club for a while because you gave they gave them you know they kind of typically gave us our first shot and uh so that's where they try and they try and sign sign guys up and, and try and keep them on for long term and it's essentially um i guess you know, like I guess if you're a little more in tune with, I guess the NRL or something, that's like the youth systems where they pull the they pull the younger players through. Um, and I guess this was a little before the time of, yeah, it was. It was before the time of like the A League youth systems. I think they brought that in when I was maybe around 21 or 22 or something like that because it came in just after I would have been eligible to go for it. So it's essentially the same thing. Now they've got like the the National Youth League, which is where they kind of pull the players out of that to put into their first grade teams. The contract that Gordon signed provided him with a platform to do what he loved. I was still working full time, so it's it's kind of it's it's not as kind of full to, you know as full to, full on as you as you think it would be um, at, at that point. You kind of just train you train three to four times a week and you play on the weekend, but you train in the nights after work. Pretty much everyone had jobs. There's very few people that would have would have bothered uh, or would have been able to live on what it was, especially people with families and stuff. For me, it was. It, to tell you the truth, coming from the Highlands, the contracts I used to sign back then, mate, they just used, used to cover my fuel pretty much. <laughs> it wasn't until I started getting a little bit older, um, I think around about 19 or 20, that's when the that's when the pay started getting pretty decent, and um, and yeah, you started actually I started actually banking a bit rather than uh, <laughs> rather than just covering my fuel costs. Normally, on average, from your experience and, and seeing everyone around, how long do people usually stay on a club for? It's so dependent on the player and the club, because if a club has a good run, I remember I played for Sutherland Sharks. I had I had six seasons there, and Sutherland Sharks they were a great club. I absolutely loved them, and uh, a lot of players stayed for a long a long time uh, at that club. But then I left I left Southern I think when I was maybe 19 or 20 and struggled to find a club that I really fit in well I had a hip surgery I had a hip operation back at that at that age and it was it was a bit of a struggle for me breaking back into different first grade teams uh so you know I was I was just kind of in a bit of a struggle period there and, and I jumped around clubs a lot so I'd gone from six years straight with Southo and then I think I, I played at the Wolves uh so I think I went to Berries. Uh, you know I had a couple of different I had a couple of different years around there still in New South Wales Premier League and then I went down to the uh, Illawarra Premier League uh where you converse with the money is is actually pretty good uh, and you don't have to train quite so much so you can focus a bit more on the career side of things as well he decided to leave high school and immediately began to help out the family business until he knew what he wanted to pursue I actually jumped on with the family business um they were looking for someone at the time and because I left about I think I left about a third of the way through year 11. It was a bit too late to jump into another school. It was a bit too late to try and find myself a trade. So my boy just said to me, look, why don't you just work here for uh, till the end of the year and then maybe jump on a trade or, or um, you know, go go into another school, maybe maybe go back and do year 11 and 12 again. I... I'm like I'm actually I'm reasonably smart, but I'm not like a huge academic. I don't love studying. I never saw myself going to uni. So, uh, you know, by the time that year kind of rolled out, I was I was looking at either um, doing the doing the trade or staying with the with the family business. But I would have been taking about a you know a pay cut down to about a third of my wage if I if I had have done uh, had have dropped back to a trade. Which looking back, you know, the trade off at that age is massive. You you may as well you may as well go and do the trade. Uh, and if I could have gone back and told my younger son, I definitely would have gone back and probably been a chippy. Would have been pretty handy in the in the in the real estate game, but um, but no, I, I stayed in there. And, and to tell you the truth, mate, I worked there the whole way through until uh, until I uh, you know kind of hung up the tools and and uh, and started the buyers agency. 
working on his parents' farm, it taught him about the value of hard work and how to be successful. They pretty much were the pretty much the the, the premium agricultural stock feed you could get in the country. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's pretty much the best stuff, and and that's that's what we used to work really hard on. Um, my dad's like an absolute perfectionist, and the the stuff we used to produce, the results we used to get were were crazy. So they you know conversely, you get paid really well when you do something really well. So uh, uh, yeah, it was it was a. It was kind of a cool learning curve doing that side of things as well. It was a bit different, you know, very different. I've actually never, uh, well, haven't really met too many people that are in, <laughs> in stock feed manufacturing. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a different thing. It certainly it kind of got the hard work side of me um, down pat because it's, you know, it was pretty, pretty uh, labor intensive job. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Sam Gordon's journey and how he got started in property. When he kind of pushed me in that direction, I got a little bit obsessed with it and started doing all the research and then I'm a bit, I've always been a bit of a bargain hunter. How he methodically researches the market before he puts any money down. It takes me, I wouldn't say ages to pull a trigger, but it takes me ages to learn a market back to front before I put my money or my client's money into a market. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Nothing was given to his parents and Gordon explains how they were able to build their farm from the ground up. When he bought it, it was originally a, it was originally a rabbit farm, uh, like a, a dying rabbit farm. When, when he and my, my mum, they moved down from uh, Sydney, they actually lived over in the Sutherland Shire and uh, they did quite well. They bought their first house and it was kind of back in the, in the boom days and uh, they bought their first house and it, tri- it, sorry, it doubled in three years and they sold it down and, and kind of had enough to come in and buy this, buy this farm. And my dad's a mechanic by trade and, and so he built this, he built this mill, he, uh, feed mill himself. He went and bought all the different parts. They didn't have that much money. They went, he went and bought all these different parts and built this mill uh, up from scratch and uh, <laughs> was able to produce his own stock feed, his own pelletized feed for these rabbits and grew it into, I, th- I think at the time when he sold it, it was the biggest uh, the biggest rabbit farm in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, he actually, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. As when any other job, he had to start at the bottom but then eventually worked his way up in the business. I started just pretty much as a laborer uh, when I first left. They kind of just needed an extra labor there and I was kind of uh, doing a lot of the helping with the production side of food and I just worked my way up um, as, as different people kind of either left or you know they weren't willing to step up to new positions when we were kind of going through a bit of growth. Uh, I, I kind of moved my way up into, into kind of packaging and distribution and then logistics side of the business and then I kind of was going out and uh, actually actually doing sales for the company as well trying to source source new clients and stuff too to to you know have different avenues to sell it down so I just kind of worked my way the whole way through it and it was, it was you know a bit of a different experience I guess. The family business had an impact on Gordon but there was a moment that pushed him down the property investing road. My parents were never they've to the truth, they've never had an actual investment. They own they own the farm and they've got a holiday home uh, down the south coast but they never really went out buying investments. Um I have a couple now that I've that I've helped them with, um, but it was it was kind of what what it really was. What got me into it was 
when I was uh, about 18, 19, I saved up about 20 grand and I wanted to go out and buy a Toyota Supra. I was uh, obsessed with Supras and um, I, I came very close to buying a couple and, and my dad was a mechanic. He'd go along with me. He'd just pick these things apart just so I wouldn't buy it. <laughs> and, then it and, then he, and then he eventually was like, look, mate, look, I think you should, uh, I think you should look at um, buying, buying, buying yourself your first home instead, you know, put your money into it. And I'd always kind of thought about it. One, one of my big idols is um, – uh, Harry Triggerboff, you know, always, you know, you always hear about how many he's got. Yeah, every year it goes up like, uh, you know, a few hundred units or something that he's that he's accumulated. And I, I honestly love the guy, man. He's 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 an inspiration. And I remember from a very young age hearing about him and about other really successful investors that had accumulated all these properties. And I thought, well, how cool to be to own all these all these properties. So it was kind of when he when he kind of pushed me in that direction, I got a little bit obsessed with it and. Started doing all the research, and then I'm a bit, I've always been a bit of a bargain hunter. So then I'm out there like talking to people and trying to find the best deals, and that's kind of that. that you know, that's really how I got into it. Him giving me that little bit of a nudge, and then um, you know my normal obsessive kind of nature, <laughs> just getting in there to to get the best thing I could, I guess. We delve into Gordon's first property purchase and what he learned from that first experience. I was. Funnily enough, I was 19 at the time when I did it and it was just after I'd had my hip operation and it was funny because all I could really afford in the immediate area was uh, was a unit well, where I was looking. So, uh, when I first looked, I looked down in uh, Wollongong, which is about an hour and a half south of Sydney. It's, it's, you know, it's a satellite city right on the coast and uh, it's, it's quite a nice spot. And uh, all I could afford was a unit. So here I am with this buddy, <laughs> this bung hip, kind of hobbling around after this surgery, trying to go up these uh, like walk-up blocks, like two and three-story walk-up blocks, <laughs> shuffling up these stairs. And uh, but it was—I'll tell you—it was a good experience. I don't know if I got a good price because the agent felt sorry for me or what. But um, but no, that, that was pretty cool. And uh, that, so that was pretty much the nuts and bolts. But I just I just went out and talked to as many agents as I could and. It, it was funny. I, I kind of realised from a young age you had to try and ascertain what something was worth uh, in a broad sense in a market. What something was worth to be able to identify what's cheap or what you know what's what's below market. You know what you're you're making money on your way in from. And you know I, I did I actually did quite well at it. And, and I reckon I bought even even on that first one. I think it was about 25, 30 k below market when I bought that one. So um, yeah, I just I guess I've, I've always kind of had that. So much ability, but the want to buy something cheap. You know, like I said before, I've always been a bargain hunter. I guess. Gordon runs through some of the numbers on that first property and the inspiration behind what he decided to do with it. The market value on, on this thing would have been around about three hundred grand, I reckon. Uh, and it was in original condition. It was a nineteen ninety five uh, unit. It was a three story walk up, and I paid two hundred and seventy five thousand for it. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I was pretty firmly that it believed it would have been worth about three hundred, and um, it was. It was kind of good because I was looking for my first thing. I wanted to do a little renovation project. You know, I think it was it was back when the I mean the block's pretty big now, but it was back when the block was huge, and I used to watch it. And uh, I wanted something I could get my hands a little bit dirty on. So yeah, so that was that was kind of my first deal, first uh, you know first little purchase, and then I renovated that. I think it cost me all up. It cost me about eight eight grand to reno that, uh, and I, I kind of you know. Put a fo- Actually, I didn't rip the kitchen out. I put all new appliances in. I reconfigured the kitchen a bit, but the carcass was still pretty. Like the you know the carcass of the actual kitchen was still pretty good, and I I just kind of you know looked into how I could. I guess tarted up a bit, and I used like high gloss enamel paints and stuff, and, and new door handles, and this thing looked like a looked like a brand new kitchen, and um, yeah, it was it was actually pretty cool, and and I think in the end I lived in it for about. 
a year with uh, with one of my good mates, and uh, and then yeah, and then I ended up renting it out. So I paid two seventy five. I put the I think it was about an eight grand rent I went to it, um, and then uh, rented it out for uh, three forty a week. That one, which wasn't with with. <laughs> the type of investor I am, I am today, that definitely wouldn't have made the grade, <laughs> cut the grade. Uh, but, but, um, but you know, it wasn't too bad. Uh, you know, for for a first investment, I definitely didn't, I definitely didn't stuff up at least. With eighteen properties currently in this portfolio, we find out about where most of these properties are located. All throughout Australia, um, I've got one particular. I kind of call it my patch that for both myself and my clients, I do what I call manufactured equity deals. So, um, duplexes, subdivisions, wholesale land and builds and stuff like that. I've, I've been investing in that area since I was, um, I think I've been there for about seven or eight years now. And I just, I know all the agents, they know if they got a good deal, I'll buy it. So it's, it's the one area in New South Wales that I still invest in today. You know, it's, Sydney's, you know, Sydney's pretty well cooked, I guess, but uh, it's the one area I can still always make really good money uh, in that market. And then um, outside of that, I've, I've got a lot of investments in uh, in both Queensland and South Australia. And I'm looking at diverse, you know, possibly diversify a little bit more. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in both those markets, uh, well, all three markets really, because I still hold uh, quite a lot of stock in New South Wales as well. Out of 18 properties, how long did it take you to accumulate to those properties? I bought the first one at 19. Uh, I did the second one. See, this, this is the kind of thing. If I, I wish I knew, I wish I knew now what. I, sorry, I wish I knew then what I knew now, because uh, <laughs> if I knew, if I'd known that I could have uh, refinanced out my equity, I would have gotten cracking a lot, a lot sooner and kind of built up a lot more. But when I was 22, I did my next one. That was uh, that was a wholesale. I, I got the land for a really good price. I built on that, and um, that's when I kind of realised I could I could pull money back out of a deal. And put it into the next one, and then I kind of went on a. I think I I lived in that one for a little bit, and then that's kind of when I found out about being able to do the refinancing. And uh, then I think I was twenty five. I bought two more. Twenty six. This is when I started kind of ramping up. I think twenty five. I bought two more. I think twenty six. I bought four, and then I just kind of you know I was consecutive kind of three or four every year until now. Gordon has been building his portfolio for the last 10 years and he shares a moment that he considers to be one of the lowest points throughout his property investing journey. I've actually been really happy with every investment I've made. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a crazy when it comes to getting the deal right. It takes me, I wouldn't say ages to pull a trigger, but it takes me ages to learn a market back to front before I put my money or my client's money into a market. I need to know it back to front. So I don't, re- I haven't really made a mistake in terms of that. My, my probably, I've not really spoken about this. My, my probably worst moment, my, my lowest point would have been, I had an idol growing up that I used to read about. Um, I used to read everything he was in. And I think when I hit about seven or eight properties, he's a buyer's agent as well. And uh, I went and met with him and uh, I, I just wanted him to review my portfolio and tell me what he thought. And he absolutely shredded me. He, he, he absolutely paid my portfolio out so bad, said I was doing terribly and conned me into um, using signing up with him as a buyer's agent. And, uh, you know, his fee was, was, a, was a fully paid upfront fee. It was about 10 grand. And, you know, over the next three months, he kept bringing me these properties and I said, mate, what were you paying my portfolio out for? These are the worst deals I've ever seen. And I ended up, Tyrone, mate, I, I ended up doing my dough on 10 grand. I, I, um, 
I called him up one day, absolutely gave it to him and, um, and uh, you know, told him not to call me back again because it was just, it was very, very disappointing, you know, for, for a guy that I grew up absolutely idolizing, you know, to, to be completely honest, to, to kind of have that happen to me. That, that would be my lowest point, I think. But, you know, you kind of, you kind of get lessons from everything you do in life, I honestly believe. And the lesson I took from it was that it, it, it made me want to become a buyer's agent. So I would never do what he did to me, to anyone else. And, you know, it's quite simply, you look at the way I kind of charge my clients. I, I, I charge a very, very small upfront fee because of that happening to me. If anyone wasn't happy with what I did, it's, it's such a, you know, it's, it's a minimal. I've always said to people, if, if you're honestly unhappy with what I've done, I'll give you your money back because I would not, I don't even present a property to my client. I wouldn't buy myself. Um, and, and that's, but that's just the way I, oper- I operate. On the flip side, he talks about a moment in his career where he knew that he was on the right track and everything seemed to fall into place. The biggest thing for me, and it's, it's something that I really focus on with clients as well, is <laughs> recycling equity. I think, honestly, that is the biggest, the biggest game changer we have as investors is See, see I, the way I work with my investors, I have three different um, three different avenues I buy for them, but I always buy in below market. It is as you said to me earlier, it's it's all about making your money on the way into the deal. If you make your money on the way into the deal, you can force a bit of value on top of that, and plus maybe have a bit of growth as well, which you're always aiming for. And then you can recycle that equity back out, essentially recycling back out the deposit and all the monies you put into the deal, and then go and put that into more. You can it's essentially a very repeatable and scalable process. Excuse me, and that's you know that's that's what what we're always going for, and that's like that that for me when the first time I ever did that, which was actually probably not the first time because the first time was Wollongong, so I didn't pull I wasn't able to pull too much money out of it. Probably I think I'd put about thirty five into it, and I think I pulled about fifteen out. But when I did the buy and build, I think I put about I didn't have heaps of cash. I think I maybe put about forty five k into it. But then I was able to refinance. I think when I refinanced, I think I pulled out about 80 grand. And when I did that, I was like, I was like, holy crap, like I just pulled out so much um, capital that that I didn't even really have. And it was then I could go and put that. What I did was I went and put that into positive cash flow deals. And I was just like, wow, this is, you know, you got it, you got to constantly making your money on the way in so you can pull it back out and keep going. And that for me is the big aha moment. And that, that's what I do with every dealer. So, inspired by Sam Gordon's journey and his amazing aha moment, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory, where we'll discuss his strategy. The strategy, in terms of it, like I've called this something, right? So, what I use is I call I use something that I've called the Trident Formula, and and essentially what it is is I have kind of three. There's three different types of deals that I love to work with. The personal habits which have been contributing to his success. Getting up at 4:59 and then just training every morning it's it's weird man like most people would probably think you know you'd you'd get tired from doing it but i get such a massive boost of energy uh from doing it and that's next time in a future episode of property investory my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything with tap to pay on iphone and stripe i streamlined my payment process effortlessly 
Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.